welcome back to Roll for Enterprise, the podcast described as the squishy heart at the center of enterprise IT. Joining us this week, we have uh, Lilac with a couple of Dunkin' Donuts and uh, Lilac's colleague, Doug Johnson. So Doug is a 25-year veteran in building teams and technology products. Uh, he's worked in startups as well as over 15 years in enterprise product management and low-code tooling space, uh, which is just one of the many overlaps with what we talk about on this podcast. Uh, but in his personal life, Doug's also a musician. He's toured as a section violinist with artists like Sarah Brightman, Diana Ross, Moody Blues, and Ray Charles. Uh, so there you go. He's got a, a spare career up his sleeve if he ever needs one outside IT. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Excellent. Uh, glad to be here, everyone. And, uh, you know, if I mentioned I've played Brahms or Tchaikovsky uh, Concerto or something like that, no one cares about that. But if I mentioned Diana Ross and Ray Charles, people really get animated. So uh, good stuff. <laughs> know your audience, Doug. Know your audience. <laughs> exactly. So we've got a bit of a... Uh, a history with musical references on this podcast. Everyone got very cross with us when we made them feel old uh, by pointing out that Nirvana's Nevermind uh, was released more than about five years ago, as we were all convinced it had been. <laughs> you know, there's a rich words for a man in a plaid shirt, Dominic. <laughs> <laughs> and an audio-only medium making fun of the host's clothing, that's a low blow. Uh, <laughs> Ooh! <laughs> But I'm actually head to toe in Patagonia because as soon as I down tools today, I'm heading up to the Alps. Uh, so we've got that to look forward to. Right, but getting on to the meat of the show, the reason we had we wanted to invite Doug on the podcast was to talk about data. And data is a very, very big topic, but uh, it's something that companies are thinking more and more about. Uh, it used to be that uh, the idea was just, you know, grab all the data that you can get your hands on and put it somewhere and then figure out what to do with it. And now we've got to the stage of, you know, figuring out what to do with it and how to do it and who should do it and who should not have access to, to the data and describing the data and so on and so forth. And it's uh, starting to become much more interesting than just how big is your storage space. Uh, so, Doug, as the expert, why don't you... Uh, give us your your position, and then we can talk about that. Yeah, well, excellent. Well, you know, data is very uh, obviously really interesting because, of course, it's really at the heart of what businesses do and their operations. It's really how they run their business, of course. Um, the back office runs on data, information passing from processes and people, and and that's really well known. Um, but I think there's a greater understanding about how data is really just now part of products and services that customers um, experience uh, from organizations. So, you know, the, the trope of, uh, you know, all businesses are becoming, uh, you know, technology companies is, is you know, I, I don't think too many businesses are, are resisting that now. And um, the idea uh, from my vantage point is that they see data as really just part of those products and services. And of course that creates opportunities and also challenges. And I think the last thing that's probably worth just noting is, is that opportunity, but also kind of the threat is I think enterprises and, and organizations as a whole are, are really just struggling on how to best leverage that data amidst all of the, the tensions that they have, everything from privacy to security. I think we may talk about that later to, you know, just management and, and many other factors that, make that leveraging of data hard. Yeah, for me, it's the, the tension that's especially interesting, the tension between, I know we have this data somewhere in the company and I would like to get hold of it and graph it or do some sort of analysis, but I can't figure out how. 
uh, one of those steps along the chain, either the access or the tooling to do something useful breaks down. And in the other direction, how do we prevent the data from going places it shouldn't? And that's the, the interesting part. And, and honestly, what, how do you even know which piece is accurate? I, I, I've been a very long time since I felt that there was a true single source of truth. So this is taking me back to our, our good friend at, at Gardner and the idea of having the CMDB somewhere in the back of everything, which um, was a beautiful dream. But similarly, it's sort of the problem with, with data, right? Like which one is right? Because there, there are often multiple versions of your social security numbers somewhere in the back end system. I love that lot. Like, I mean, there's that, the kind of the many places problem, the data is all over the place, but then um, that's not necessarily a bad thing because sometimes you need it for performance or specific applications hold some optimization, but then you have a consistency problem. And, and so it's that consistency that then creates liabilities, uh, bad, bad data that's as it's used in processes and just, you know, bad experiences. So uh, it, it's a real, it's a real challenge, but you know, obviously it's an opportunity and that's where that tension exists. Yeah. And that was one of the takeaways for me from uh, reInvent back in December when we had that brief moment of being able to go to in-person events again before everything shut down once more. And Amazon was pitching, they explicitly said this, I think, one database for, for every single use case that a company might have because you have your, uh, you know, your event stream that comes in and then you have your online transaction processing system, but then you want to do historical analytics on it. And then you have something else that you're using to do time series. And now you've got 17 copies of your data uh, all <laughs> over the place. And the, the access and the securing and the, all of that starts to get really complicated. And, you know, cards on the table, full disclosure. I work for MongoDB that takes a radically different approach. Those who follow me on Twitter will have, will have seen what I have to say on that. I'm not going to belabor the point on this podcast. <laughs> but it's... Um, both are valid points. You know, as you say, there, there might be reasons why you need to use a different a different way to interrogate your data that your main platform won't enable. But also you have to be aware that that does have a trade-off in the loss of control. Once you, have a, you give someone a copy of the data, all of the controls that you placed on it are null and void because they can just take them right back off their copy. It's their copy. They can do what they want. And that's the, the complexity. And while we're here, um, I, I did want to mention, I guess we can't talk about data without talking about the, you know, the, the buzzword bingo uh, in terms of like AI capabilities and making data smarter. Um, um, I, I didn't get a chance to read everything from uh, reInvent, but uh, was, were there anything interesting at reInvent around this area of kind of what uh, AWS is doing that, that comes to mind in, in terms of this, this uh, holy grail vision that they had, uh, Dominic, in terms of bringing all the data in one place? Throwing my mind back, and we're talking about the, the other side of uh, the black hole that was the holiday period, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I, my main recollection was a sensation that AI and ML is starting to mature, that it's no longer, let me talk to you about AI and ML, but it's let me talk to you about a cool use case that just happens to be enabled by uh, these technologies. And the one that I remember was, I believe it was United, and they had some bigwig, possibly their CIO, uh, that was on stage. And they were talking about the, the documentation check that they had to add to their check-in process for proof of vaccination. Uh, and that's all running with an Amazon text recognition service because obviously people, international travelers, are uploading all sorts of weird and wacky formats uh, to that thing. So it's very, very difficult to have a, a deterministic processing path, but the text recognition is 
been able to to help them uh, achieve that goal of uh, mostly automated processing of a wide variety of uh, document formats without some poor intern having to go and define each one. So there's a lot of use cases like that. There was uh, Amazon Recognition with a KE, their facial recognition system. That's also got a, a mention. But again, in the context of a use case that used it rather than look how cool our facial recognition is. And I think that's helpful. And I think that's the same with data. I mean, it used to be that we talked about big data as an end goal in itself or the data lake. Uh, and my quip at the time was always, you know, uh, stuff gets lost uh, in lakes all the time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you need a way to to go fishing in the lake and find <laughs> the thing that you want and hope that what you, you wind up with is not an old boot. So I do feel very much like I have to tell this story. And, and I know that this is a little bit a lot for a podcast, but I'm just going to go there. So 20 years ago when I was in business school, I took a, um, a data mining class and I went to MIT. And so I would just say that they did not go light on the calculus in that course. I would also say that I was not necessarily really strong at calculus, you know, a good five or six years after I'd taken it. Um, anyway, it, it taught me something real important um, as my final project definitely showed that your tax ID number was highly correlated to the amount of goodwill you had on your balance sheet. Um, ask a stupid question get an unbelievably stupid answer. Um, I was able to demonstrate that in my final project. It squeaked by with a B, which was which was lovely. Um, but that has always been my concern with these sort of data lake AI functions is if you don't have an intelligent person crafting the query or, or crafting the, the use case, what you have is, is actually just nonsense. Yeah, garbage in, garbage out. Uh, someone wants to use some fancy technique and so they pick whatever data there is and they don't really interrogate, where did that data come from? Are there some weird assumptions baked in? Uh, is the process of gathering the data, does that have some weird assumptions baked in? And especially once we get into areas of you know public policy or who should receive a loan, uh, that starts to get very problematic, which is why I've always been very happy to stick to uh, back office IT sorts of uh, uh, implementations of AI and ML, where you know if you're doing noise reduction on an event stream, and you drop some high CPU utilization message, that probably won't ruin somebody's life. Uh, <laughs> Dominic, always staying out of any moral quandary. Just step back from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's safest. <laughs> and we're back to that tension uh, between uh, you want to use the data, but yet uh, if we use it, it has some liability or compliance challenge or, or whatnot. So it's, it, it's, it's a real quandary. And that's why there's so many millions and billions of dollars being sport, you know, poured into this problem to, to try to help uh, enterprises with this uh, area. I think it'd be interesting to have this sort of pivot, this conversation. So we started talking about this, how we use the data. Dominic lives in Europe where they like to redact everything. Um, just as a matter of course. Um, and, and I wonder sort of Doug, I know you, you have a lot of thoughts on, on how we use data and who gets to see what and, and what the problems are that people are facing with that. Yeah, well, I mean, redaction and, and access control and, and kind of the, that whole space kind of work together. And, and there is that very strong interest for organizations to want to use the data. But then depending on the, the business process, the use case, the who can see what and how much can they see uh, becomes a real key topic. Among other things, the business reason why it becomes a topic, because what you want to do 
is you want to empower these operations. We kind of started off talking about, you know, kind of operations is a key thing that drives, um, uh, drives said, you know, data drives kind of operations, which leads into product services and kind of the opportunity threat we were talking about earlier. But as you're using that data in operations, you want to be able to use the least cost resource to be able to satisfy the operations that you're using. And of course, oftentimes that means the less kind of sensitive information that you want to be able to allow, um, for, you know, you might allow a senior rep to be able to have access to certain parts of the information, but not others. And so being able to contextualize that information um, so that in certain application contexts, depending on a lot of factors, the skill of the person, the, the maybe certifications they've gone through or other kind of compliance factors, they, they can use it or not. And so uh, and being able to use that across applications, uh, obviously, again, that kind of many uh, places problem we were talking about earlier, um, information is all over the place. And so if you can have a, a technique that can allow you to kind of get those streams of data into the right application context, but also maybe as it gets there, maybe it's already redacted. That's kind of the holy grail that I think customers and, and many vendors are, are, are trying to aspire to. Especially because a lot of companies are no longer just looking at their own data and uh, starting to foreshadow the security conversation, but it's no longer a, a perimeter, a hard perimeter between inside and outside. You might be licensing data sets from any number of third-party providers. Uh, maybe you're looking at weather or census data or credit scores or you know whatever you there any number of third-party data sets out there and marketplaces springing up to facilitate the exchange and the monetization uh, of those data sets. And again, at that point, you have to, uh, you have to track the, the provenance, how much you trust uh, that particular data source. Uh, are these particular data points cleared for public release versus what are you going to keep internally? And it, it's no longer just about the, the raw number. It's a whole lot of metadata that's, uh, that's attached to it. Uh, that's equally important to for companies to track uh, so that they don't risk losing the the crown jewels, the value that they're hoping to extract from the data in the first place. Yeah, I'm now thinking about the horror of trying to execute a GDPR removal of a human across organizational boundaries in this kind of situation. It just, I recall, so in, in my last gig, I spent a lot of time with backups and encrypted backups, which was super fun, by the way, if you ever want a real good, rollicking good time. Um, and one of, the, one of the joys of an encrypted backup, right, is that you can sort of hand somebody the entire encrypted file and be like, have at it. We don't actually care, right? Um, and, and there's plausible deniability in that. But to extract somebody from a GDPR perspective, from an encrypted set of backups is essentially impossible, Right. Yeah. It's not a thing that can be done. But then once you add another third party to the whole thing, the whole thing just blows up even more. It just seems impossible. How are the courts even handling that? Or are they? One approach that's emerging is encryption. The idea is that you encrypt, you do very specific field level encryption. So you encrypt the data about me with one key and the data about Doug with another key and the data about Lilac with a third key. And then there's a, an encompassing data set that contains uh, information about all three of us, which may be itself. Uh, encrypted. So when the GDPR request from me hits, you don't have to mess around with the whole thing. You just delete the keys that would allow you to decrypt my data. So the data is provably mathematically inaccessible, as good as destroyed, even if technically the bits are still there in your, you know, cloud resilient, multiply backed up uh, environments where it's very, very hard to ever 
provably delete all of it. So you're actually saying you literally throw away the keys. Yeah. It's like that's actually how we're going to solve this is we're going to throw away the key. That is interesting. Do you remember when, you know, one encry- having one encryption key felt like like a hurdle? We're going to get the we're going to get the key. We're going to do that. <laughs> now you're like actually every data point we're going to We're all going to PGP <laughs> sign our email, of course. So. <laughs> Next year oh, is the year of PGP on the desktop. You know, <laughs> I did that for a period of time at IBM. The oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> How did we spend our time? <laughs> yeah, it was at the, same, at the same time in my life when I carefully maintained a SIG file. I'm sorry, wait a minute. It is time for a, for a diversion in this discussion. <laughs> Doug has the best SIG file going. Like, literally, I have ever seen. He has built the dream. Doug, please tell us. SIG... <laughs> Well, I, I know the signature file. Oh, you're talking about on my email. Okay. Yes. Yes. So uh, um, uh, on my email, I, I, I'm quite um, fond of kind of business and just kind of quotes that just make you think, essentially. And so I have a, a system using text expander where um, uh, you, you fire off a shortcut key and it randomly chooses one of, you know, a hundred quotes and I keep adding to it. Uh, so if you get an email ever from me, it, uh, it has a random generator on, uh, on, uh, the kind of quote and quip of the day, if you will. So, uh, yes, but see, so what he's not telling you is that he curates it a little bit. And what he's also not telling you is that my dream is to add in the snarky, bitter ones that you could actually throw in when you're interested in giving somebody the subtle finger at the bottom of your email. But he's far too good a person to do that. That's where we need some AI that will analyze the tone of the yes. email and choose yes. an appropriate sig. When somebody tells you who they are, listen, right? Yeah. And of course, all our younger listeners are going, sig file? What's that? Yeah. Is that- Wait, we have younger <laughs> listeners? We hope, we aspire. <laughs> I just now realized that uh, when I blew away my operating system late last year, I did not restore my SIG file. And so I need to do that. I, it's still in the backup. Encrypted. Encrypted. Of course it's encrypted. I, well, I, I use Apple Mail like a heathen. Uh, pause for booze and derision to die down. Uh, but that actually includes built-in support for a standard SIG file with the delimiters for rotation. So you separate each quote in a single text file, and it knows which is which, and it randomly chooses one. I need this in my life. <laughs> I go. need to solve this problem. So now you have two approaches, either text expander snippets or you could do it with uh, the built-in Apple Mail. I think we have our recommendation as well as my next to-do item. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, okay. So what is, do we think, the opportunity? Is there one opportunity with the data? And, or is it more each company is going to do its own thing? At the risk of prejudicing the witness, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring and say, as we were saying with AI and ML, I'm suspicious when someone has one goal, uh, especially when it's kind of a, it's a recursive goal. The goal of the big data is to gather more data uh, in the data lake <laughs> and go to 10 and repeat. I see that sometimes we, we had that with data a few years ago, but these days, as we were saying, not so much. It's more people are using the data for a purpose. And when you ask them, you know, how are you achieving this automated decision process or this decision support or what have you? Oh, it's because we have data sets going back X number of years and we license Y other third-party data sets and we aggregate and we do we do proprietary magic and uh, decisions pop out. But am I correct on that assumption or do you have a different view? 
Well, I, I would just basically say what the kind of opportunity or, or everything exists in a context, I guess, is maybe the best place to start. It's not one size fits all, but there are some universal principles that everyone's looking for. Um, you know, certainly one of them is, is better, you know, better results and customer experiences, that operational processes that we were talking about. You were mentioning, Dominic, which was really, um, you know, insightful in terms of, you know, vendor relationships and feeds that you get from other sources. So anything that you can do to uh, make uh, the experiences and business better, which obviously always exists in a context. And of course, better, and this is, a, I've, you know, heard this talked about on, on this show, is, you know, anything that you could do to empower the business as well, uh, to make, you know, decisions themselves uh, complemented by IT, of course, but you know that empowerment is part of better as well. But of course, universally, uh, anything you could do to make processes and operations cheaper is what all organizations, are, of course, are, are looking for. So it exists in a context. So it's it's kind of a universal principle. But obviously, everything from you know data is in terms of storage costs, but it's more about the art of the possible. And I think that's really what we're talking about here is. Things that used to be too expensive to integrate or to bring together, or if you want to use this data, but it has compliance in it. Oh, well, what if you could redact that information on the flyer? What if you could bring structure to unstructured information? Now it's cheaper and, and the art of the possible is part of that. But then, of course, the, the enabler or a enabler, it's not the only thing, but is uh, the result that you're looking for is something that's smarter, that empowers better and cheaper. Sometimes that's using AI techniques, but sometimes it's using good old-fashioned other forms of, of data parsing and integration. And so th that's, that's kind of how I, I think of kind of the opportunity and kind of how enterprises are handling it. Um, those are kind of universal principles, but I, I think if you apply them within a context, the specific organization um, can very quickly surface you know, some great areas of, of, of benefit. I like that. So if we look at it over time, first we had the challenge of how can we store a terabyte of data? Then we had the challenge of how can we query a terabyte of data in a reasonable amount of time and for a reasonable cost and processing power? And now we're in the phase of, okay, we can do those things. How do we manage that process now from the point of view of compliance and the point of view of security? And from the point of view of who can do that, it used to be, you know, you had the, the high priesthood of the database in their ivory tower. Uh, usually dark, moldy dungeon. Uh, and they would be the only people who could actually talk to to the data. And so the business people had to go on bended knee and ask them. And the request would then be interpreted, which then leads to all sorts of possibilities for error and misunderstanding. And now we have, uh, between the automated tools, AI and the ML that we've mentioned a few times, but also low-code tools that help less technical people that guide them into making these queries, without uh, blowing up the database server with uh, uh, some sort of poorly optimized query. I think that's starting to unlock uh, a lot of value that was latent, that was promised, but was always too hard or too expensive to achieve. Uh, and now we're going to see maybe a, a flowering uh, of that. I really like also what you were noting earlier about what AWS was doing at reInvent in terms of putting it in a in a use case context. It wasn't just you know, these tools for tools sake, it was really contextualizing that use of data and just being really surgical about what you do, what you are trying to accomplish in the context of the result, and then applying the, the, the right technique for the, uh, the job at hand. I mean, that's kind of always the, the trajectory with, uh, uh, with technology. It's 
whoa, look at this cool thing. And there's a look at what I can do with a cool thing. And those are two distinct phases. And so it's always heartening when uh, a technology that clears that gap uh, is beyond even the adoption gap. It's the, the getting something useful out of it gap. Yeah. I think that that's a big part of the adoption gap, though. That's what we've seen often is that um, the analogy I keep thinking of when, when this pops up is uh, when I bought my house, it was empty, right? Whoever had left, needed it needed like a, a sort of significant renovation. And so essentially I, I was looking at it. Apart empty from house, the squirrels, right? Apart from the squirrels that are presently still living in the attic. Um, but they're leaving. I'm told they've been evicted. Um, but so the place was empty and, and, and the real estate agent said, you know, nobody can imagine what a house looks like when it's empty. When you see somebody else's furniture, sometimes it's a barrier. But the reason they stage houses is because we actually can't imagine what a king size bed looks like in that room. And the, I think the analogy is true for technology tools, right? We say, look at this cool thing, this cool widget, show me what it can do. And then I can imagine what it could do for me. Oh, there's a business opportunity then. The IKEA AR app for business. So you can take your billy shelf and place it virtually against your wall. And then the API economy becomes the interlocking parts. Like, here's your little peg. There you go. And you, and you always wind up with a million little um, spanners and things. Yes, extra pieces, but also three missing pieces. Yeah, always. <laughs> always. And, okay, so the final step then, and we've kind of shied away from this a couple of times but is how do we secure all of this nonsense and partly it's through through the encryption as we said but as we get much more um, distributed in our approach both within a company and across company boundaries and we have to start to think about the the provenance and the supply chain and whatnot and how do we secure data all along uh, that chain so What's your go-to response today, early 2022, and knowing that it's all, it, it was different six months ago and it'll probably be different again six months from now? Well, um, the, the access points are, are really where um, information reaches applications, reaches uh, business processes, and, and kind of interacts with in, in the, the way that, that people and, and systems kind of touch things. So those access points are, are the key of... of um, how information is secured. Um, so that's a key item um, that absolutely has to be uh, considered. And, and the policies that kind of run that of, of who has access to what, uh, it's a little bit to that kind of the art of the possible that you were talking about, uh, Lilac, because if you kind of think about it in the old style of this application has these access policies, you might say, well, I could never use this data in this context when I'm accessing it. And, and so I, I think there's a real opportunity for organizations to really rethink how they're using information, where it could be used in different business processes, and not think about access control as it was you know, five years ago, but is access control more dynamic now? Are there ways of liberating data in a safe way, kind of like some of the things we were talking about earlier of maybe if it's this kind of user, they see this view into the information. Maybe it's encrypted in a certain way, uh, as you were kind of noting, Dominic, earlier, but also maybe it's redacted on the fly for certain users, but also other users can be empowered with a, a greater data. Set. So I think really rethinking that and not being limited to 
I, this is how we've always done it is the real opportunity, but also kind of challenge for Peter, people to kind of break out of their current way of thinking. And so that's, that's kind of my, my hot take on kind of what the latest uh, thought process might be in that area. Obviously there's lots of other topics around uh, data uh, security uh, to talk about, but I think that's the business opportunity in terms of using the data and those key access points. Yeah, agreed. Getting more granular than just, can I access the system? Can I run queries? But, you know, what will I see if I run the query? And maybe what I see is different from what you see, uh, even for the same query on what is nominally the same data set. Yeah, and the techniques for that really, um, you know, vendors have really responded with a lot of choices and options to really make it much more dynamic. And so that's really, I think, the opportunity that uh, organizations can really um, make sure that they first know what use case and problem they're trying to solve, but don't assume that the answer is no. Yeah. yeah, that's generally good advice. Know what problem you're trying to solve, what business problem you're trying to solve, and then start busting out the, the architecture diagrams. <laughs> I think that's just so, I don't know, it's, it's almost boring of you to say, Dominic, truly. <laughs> I've never done the opposite. Never. Uh, so, uh... <laughs> never. <laughs> yeah. Never. I forget who it was who said this originally, uh, but a good way to understand the success of a project is to see how many people are claiming uh, claiming the responsibility for it on their LinkedIn profiles. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if something's a, a complete dog, nobody will mention it. But if something takes off, then everyone will have been instrumental to its creation or inspired or worked on. I, I have to say that I'm remembering a project that we worked on, Dominic, as oh, yes. being notably absent from anybody's LinkedIn profile. <laughs> I, including mine. <laughs> and mine as well. It never happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I learned a lot. Experience, as they say, cheap at twice the price. <laughs> uh, okay. Can we talk about Log4j? Let us indeed, good. not least because we have Doug4j uh, talking about Log4j. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I guess uh, everyone's seen the the log for J, uh, um, you know, events. We we've talked about it here uh, before. Uh, but uh, here in the, in the states, the the White House had an open source summary or a, a summit rather on security and and really having a chance to kind of double click on this. And um, I, I thought I, I thought it was really good that uh, the, the White House really kind of started acknowledging this and surface. Uh, these topics. Um, the, the, the challenge, of course, is that you get into a lot of positioning at, at, the, at the event. And so I, it's uh, actually what comes out of that from a, um, a specific uh, White House event. I'm not sure what will occur except for the surfacing of it in a larger uh, discussion. And, and that, that open source discussion was... Um, yeah, that's I got really to be the ultimate, be careful what you say to management type of meeting. They come out of there and they say, we're going to do a cyber. And people in the background go, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I, I will say, I'll give a shout out to, uh, I think it was the eBay uh, um, chief artificial intelligence officer. Uh, uh, he, uh, he takes the prize though. He gets the, the a buzzword bingo, I think, award because he managed in an open source uh, uh, security summer to to use the words AI and low code in the same sentence um, in one of the articles I had read from a Protocol. So uh, hats off to them uh, on the buzzword bingo there. But um, one of the things that I, I thought was good that you know Google had a kind of a response in terms of uh, you know making open soft uh, open source software safer and more secure and 
and kind of really look at some systemic things that could happen in the industry. And um, they've been doing a lot of good work uh, in um, in this space for a long time. And uh, so I, I thought that was, you know, some good follow up there. The thing I guess I just, I was just kind of thinking about it as a practical thing that uh, what organizations might be might want to think about uh, now. And I, I just scratched this down the, this morning. So uh, hot off the presses and uh, take it for whatever it's worth. But, you know, eventually I think the industry is going to develop some better um, kind of risk scoring around this. Uh, there's many tools that exist and uh, this is an area which, you know, I personally can always get more of an education, but I think right now we're, we're kind of in between this maturity and, and hype cycle um, around this area. So I think organizations, if the, if you don't, uh, already have one. I think developing your own risk score around individual projects that you're using in, in the technology um, cycle is really important. And then that, you know, really permeates everything that you do. Identify the projects that are risky uh, and or that you don't have as much trust is perhaps a better way of saying that. And and then just making sure that you have the right policies in place to track the project. Everything from, I guess there was some some other uh, news around uh, what happened with NPM, I think, recently, uh, Dominic. Uh, uh, did you want to speak to that at all, uh, some of the, the things that happened there? Because I, I think that would fit into this idea of kind of having policies, I think. Exactly. No, it fits into a number of things because it fits into software supply chain and controlling your inputs. And, and it's not the first time we've discussed NPM on the podcast because the most recent instance was a developer who owned two libraries, Colors and Faker, and uh, revised those and seems to have been going through some personal issues at the time. There seems to be a lot of backstory. But the point is, many companies just automatically took the latest version and rolled it out. And that caused all sorts of major issues. But this also happened uh, a while ago with, uh, this one was even funnier because it was libraries that were literally for checking is odd and is even. And it turned out there's a whole lot of people were just using these libraries and they ref they reference, uh, one of them ref references the other. So either is odd is just a reference to is even flipped or the other way around, I forget. <laughs> it's the most ridiculous thing, but programmers were referencing these uh, these libraries in their own tool chain. And so it raises a lot of questions around, you know, companies should have validation processes that don't assume that some random third party hosted library is going to be good forever and ever uh projects get taken over all the time you don't know who the new maintainer is maintainers might be going through stuff in their personal lives that affects uh, their output and these aren't your employees they don't work for you they have different sets of incentives and so maybe we should have some sort of process for something that becomes as central as log4j to compensate and reward uh, those developers but maybe they wouldn't want that because it, that might come with uh, control and demands and expectations that they wouldn't feel they wanted to accommodate. That's not why they got into open source. Uh, and we just need to, as an industry, uh, think a bit harder about that. It's not the same as when you would download the package and compile it into binary and the binary is what you distributed. Now, if your service is constantly online and constantly being deployed effectively uh, through these automated processes, that gets uh, a bit different. 
And I would say that this is kind of fits in this idea that I was suggesting in terms of kind of risk scoring of open source projects, but then kind of having a different level of engagement in terms of that level of trust. And so, you know, um, version pinning and, you know, other techniques, if there's something that you don't know, you know, you don't know this project really well, um, you know, you should not just automatically take the new version. And, and, and just, you know, it seems like pretty basic things that I think a lot of teams are have thought about, but they probably more have a universal policy. Like we either automatically software pin or, or version pin or rather or, or not. And I think, I think organizations need to be a bit more teams, nuanced, a little exactly. bit more granular. Yeah, and yeah, and that's, that's, that's the overall thought process I had there that I thought I would share. No, it's a, a good thought. And I think one that many people are, are reaching towards right now is a, how do we achieve that? Uh, if we want to be flexible in our internal stuff, but validate the external stuff, but still use it, it's uh, a lot more complicated than when you just put the CD in the box and you were done with it from that point. Right. I, I think about that actually quite regularly because somebody, I was talking to somebody yesterday and they were asking me about our release processes and just how agile they were. And they sort of on the baseline of, of essentially the SFDC world where, you know, you're going to do a release every 45 minutes um, from what I can tell. And I was like, oh, wow, the world really it contains multitudes. There's really quite a spectrum in this world of the way things play out. And it took me back to the good old days of having the CD um, and and what it meant to release products meant like publishing physical things <laughs> to humans in boxes. <laughs> yeah, regular listeners may remember I did some work in my home office over the summer and one of the artifacts I found was a DDS2 cassette tape uh, which was used to distribute software for HPUX uh, workstations. <laughs> yeah, I kept that one as a reminder. I'll show it to my kids. <laughs> one thing I would like to see as as a result of this White House and Open Source Summit, and I, I heard a lot of vendors and different uh, uh, collaborators in, in that event you know, talk about is just making sure that open source doesn't become the bad guy. You know, uh, here exactly. is, you know. Back to the 90s. What was it? The contamination of open source? <laughs> right. Yeah, this, this, uh, this is how software is built today. And, and there's great advantage to this. But of course, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. Did I just say that? Wow. But, um, yeah. uh, but you know, w with that, you know, option and, and value, you also have a responsibility. And I think enterprises need to think about their policies much more granularly. I think they kind of had a we're for it, we're against it. And, and as usually is the case in complex systems is it's more about nuance and, and how do you use it, but yet have the right policy for your organization. I love that we've taken an entire podcast to gravitate around to the default response of a vendor whenever asked a question. Well, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, Doug. Uh, next time we get you, you'll have, you'll have to bring your violin and uh, share some musical stylings. But uh, it's been a great conversation. I hope the listeners also enjoyed it. Do let us have your feedback at Roll4Enterprise with the number four or via the LinkedIn page. The link will be in the show notes. Uh, and that will also include all of uh, Doug's content info if you want to follow up with him directly. But in the meantime, thank you, Doug. Thank you. And thank we will you. talk to you all next week.